The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour, Eric Natal of Nine Points, going to be talking about his background and thesis on energy. So, Eric, for those who are not familiar with who you are, uh, talk about your career progression, uh, everything that you've done up to the point of what you're doing now and what's your primary focus of, and expertise. Sure. So I, I work at a company called Nine Point Partners. We're based in Toronto, Canada. I run uh, two funds with AUM of just under $2.1 billion. The, the primary one is the Nine Point Energy Fund. I've been managing it for 12-odd years. I've been in the industry for 19 years. The, the fund was the number one uh, energy fund in the world last year, as it was of conventional energy in 2019, and we're the largest energy fund in, uh, in Canada. So that's a, that's a quick background. Okay, now I've heard you talk about your experience um, working with Sprott. Um, talk through that. A bit. I had Kevin Bamber. I don't know if that name sounds familiar on one of these spaces sure. uh, not too long ago. But but Sprott's an interesting firm, and Eric, I think, is a particularly unique personality. So talk through that experience for a bit. Yeah, I started at Sprott in 2003, right out of school. I uh, was hired by Eric and another manager, Jean Francois Tardif, who is a, a really good money manager. Working with Eric was was great. He was a really really good mentor. We, I started off as a generalist, so just uh, you know picking small cap, uh, mid cap. U.S. and Canadian uh, names, but it was a lot of the lessons that he instilled in me that helped me navigate through, uh, you know, the, the the very very dark depths of 2020. He was the highest conviction manager I've ever seen. Like the guy was not afraid to take big big positions so long as he did his work. Like I helped him do, uh, you know, do the do the research. So we knew we knew our stuff, and it allowed us to take advantage of drawdowns and, and add to positions and. And even you know, as more as importantly, sit on your hands and let let the 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 stock uh, you know reach levels that you think it it should be reaching. So he he was a really really good mentor to to, to have, and I'm I'm, a, I'm deeply appreciative of my time with him. What got you to move from generalist focusing on the energy sector in particular? Well, Eric got, got bullish on oil specifically in 2005. I was originally hired to look at NAC gas stocks at the same time in, in 03, but Eric started believing in peak oil. Around 05, you know, Matt Simmons, uh, Twilight in the Desert, etc. So he was a little early, but directionally, he got the call on oil, bang on. So we launched the, this, the Sprott Energy Fund in 05. I took it over in 2010. And then we did a management buyout from Sprott. Uh, Sprott wanted to just be a gold shop. So they, they were uh, 
selling all of the non-gold products. We instead of being sold, we we bought it uh, from them in a, in a management buyout. And so it's it's the same continuity, of the fund, same office, same same floor, etc. So you mentioned that conviction, right? And conviction is kind of an interesting thing in the investment industry because conviction is what makes you and hopefully your investors very wealthy. It's also what can make somebody go through hell for a while, which we'll talk <laughs> about too, right? And and diversification that is the antithesis to conviction, right? That you can't be have, have conviction if you have a diversified portfolio to some extent. Talk about that that early timing and launching that in 05, because you know, as you know, in this business of, of investing, you can be right in your thesis but wrong in your timing, and it's really just about surviving long enough to be proven right. Yeah, like in, in 05, you know, a lot of the the beliefs that Eric had around uh, peak oil uh, theory clearly did not play out. Um, you know, this was pre-U.S. shale, which uh, was not anticipated. Um, there were some OPEC challenges at the at the time. But specifically, like conviction, if I fast forward more to, to more modern day, when we talk about, you know, the conviction required to to be, remain steadfast as much as possible through 2000, when we were all dealing with something that we've never dealt with ever before, like a global pandemic, you know, specifically for energy, you know, a demand shock that was many, 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 many multiples of, of anything we've ever seen in, in history. And so, you know, it's, it, I, I think that it's, it segregates or it's the distinction of a good money manager versus an average where they have conviction in their names. And, and from my opinion, I can have conviction because I know what I'm, I'm doing, like in terms of the, the investment, I can do the analysis. Like we have models internally. We, we don't rely on anybody externally to, to do it. So we've got everything modeled up from 70 to 120. Eventually we're going to have to probably model a higher oil number than that. And so I can see very clearly what we own, why we own it, should we retain owning? What type of upside versus downside can we measure, et cetera? And yeah, conviction is incredibly important. And it's important to know that it's different in terms of conviction when you are the man in the arena, right? Somebody that's running a fund versus an underlying clients, right? And, and I've heard you talk about that in a prior conversation that your fund went to, I believe, 20 some odd million in the depths of the COVID crash and then just went absolutely vertical since. I want you to talk about that period for a moment with the COVID crash when oil went to negative, what you were feeling and experiencing running <laughs> that fund. But but I want you to talk through that period in terms of, again, the conviction of the of the entrepreneur versus the conviction of the underlying investors. I used the term soul sucking many, many a times uh, during that period. It was it was truly awful. The so like not only are you incinerating your own net worth but you're losing money at the fastest pace that you've ever, ever seen. And, and it, there was a time where, you know, part of it does feel like it's, it's somewhat out of your control. You walk in and, you know, it was the morning, it was over the weekend where Saudi officially got into a pissing match with, with Russia, right as the pandemic was kicking off. It was like, okay, that was not anticipated. So I'm, I'm driving into the office very, very early. I know it's going to be a bad day. And so, you know, we've got, you know, got the, the, the fund open, we, we watched it at the open and to watch a name like a Sonovus, which is a large cap Canadian company up, up here, open down 50%, other names like down 30, 40, 50, some small caps down 60% on the day. That was just the beginning of a multi-month journey on, on finding out just how low things can go. And so, yeah, it was, it was extraordinarily challenging. My fund load at $26 million. You know, it sits at 1.8 billion uh, today. I give all the credit to my clients. They, I have the best client base on this planet. They are incredibly uh, loyal. 
you know, part of that came from I, I really tried my best to inform, to say this too shall pass, and not just give false op- false optimism or false hope, but like this is why this is the the logic and the facts. And in in that time that is still so fresh, like people were just were, were you were paralyzed by fear because it was just so much uncertainty. But we looked at it, and you know, again, we do all of our own work, so we'd be like, well, shit, like here are names where. You know, they've got enough liquidity, they've got hedges in place, et cetera, but everyone is just so fearful, just everything's getting liquidated. And so we tried to turn that around to say, look, this too shall pass. This, when it does, you know, if if we're right, because it was, it was based upon a forecast at the time, but we see the opportunity for generational wealth. And so you can take advantage of of the fear and, and, and use it to your advantage. And it was funny. So I, I got a call from a Bloomberg reporter. It just, it happened to be, uh, the day after the bond, like pure, pure luck. But, you know, it's nice when a forecast can match up with, um, with what comes to pass. Like in the interview, we said, well, look at like, we don't know when things are going to turn. But what we think is we can make like 400% from this time. And so we fast forwarded uh, one year, I think it was one year from that interview. And uh, our fund was up like 440% from from that time. And so, yeah, it was it was incredibly difficult. I wouldn't wish that upon anybody. But my God, the the lessons the the mental fortitude that 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 made you do like if i use the analogy of you know like i was the guy in a rowboat in the middle of the ocean you're just seeing this epic black wall coming at you and you can't turn around and so the only thing you can do is strap yourself in make it through and if you do then you're the last man standing and you're going to reap all of the rewards and you know i look at today there's in canada like energy is a huge part of our economy you know, we're one of the largest oil oil uh, holders of reserves in the world, and yet there's only two energy funds left in Canada. And so this is the time to be rewarded for, and my clients have been rewarded for uh, for the times that we had to live in March, April, and May of of uh, 2020. See, I, I love this because I'm smiling as you're as you're talking about this because I present all over the U.S. at CFA chapters on these different research studies, and I always make a point to emphasize that we live in the small sample. Right, we live in the day to day, whereas markets live in a world of longer trends and secular cycles. And when you're living in the anomaly, and that anomaly is hell for what you're doing, the only thing you can do is keep going through that hell. Talk about that education component because I'm kind of struggling with this myself now. You know, you have to be continuously communicating and and making sure that your investors stay with you during those anomalous periods, during those drawdowns. But it's really hard to get people to understand that investing is not about the here and now in a particular theme or strategy, but it's really about how that interplays with longer-term portfolio management. Yeah, I, I think the mistake that many fund managers make during times when you know things are going against them, when the call is not working out, when you're on your ass, and people think that if they hide, then their clients will not know how bad of a job they're doing in the moment. And I think that is just a, a critical, critical mistake. If that's something, if that was the philosophy that I adopted in 2020, I would not be here to talk to you. And so there's, you know, when you're doing well, clients generally don't want to talk to you. Or if they do, they want to say, okay, well, how much, you know, how much more upside is there? That's a conversation I do have today with some clients because I have some some clients up 1,500, 1,600, 1,700. And so it's trying to say, well, you know, we still are very, very excited. We think stocks are more than doubles, et cetera. But the value add of a fund manager is truly on the days when you're just the last thing you want to do is go on like TV. Like I would go on BNN, which is the, the Canadian equivalent of, of 
CNBC. And like when you're down 80%, when you look like the biggest clown in the world, where you know you have to do top picks and stuff, and they're down massively, the last thing anybody naturally wants to do is go on live television and admit that you're completely wrong in the moment. But that's when you add value to your clients. You have to remind them, why do they own what they own? Why is it a mistake now to lock in what I thought at the time was going to be generational, unrecuperable losses? But then at the same time, say, look at this too is going to go, it's going to get better. This is why though, it's not false optimism. It's just not false, false hope. This is logic and data and what we think will be fact. And this is why you can take advantage of that. And so I, I find like Twitter, like I'm, I'm the only manager I think in Canada really using it or using it effectively. And it's, it's, it's a pain in the, in the behind, like, you know, every tweet I have to do, it's got to be compliance approved beforehand. And, you know, you think you've got something good and then you get rejected all these, these things. And, it's it's a lot of work, but it's incredibly valuable to remind your clients why are they in the trade. At times, like this is a very volatile sector. You know, you'll have headlines if we just have Iran boarding a Greek tanker now and oil's up in session. Like there's so much noise on a day-to-day basis. My job truly is to act as that filter for my clients and say, this is what matters. This is what I'm focusing on. This is what I would suggest you focus on too. Shut out the rest of it. You know, we have, we, there are days where oil is down four or five percent in a day, and I'll have a client call. I'm like, frankly, I can't explain that. Like, there's a physical market for oil, and then there's the financial, and the financial is 32 times bigger than the physical, and the physical is already the biggest financial, uh, biggest commodity in the world. So it's just, is that noise or did something change? And so, like that communication, uh, like I saw on Instagram, there's an interview by Warren Buffett, and this is something Eric Sprod told me many, many years ago, and they both said the same thing. The best investment you can make is in yourself and making sure that you're an effective communicator, both written and verbally or on TV, radio, whatever, because that really, really distinguishes you as a fund manager. It's not just about performance. It's being able to, co- to convey the thesis in a manner in which is you know understandable and has conviction, but it's also having the ability to remind people in those the darkest of days why they should remain uh, invested. That's that is critical, critical skill, I think, for a successful fund manager. This is really, I think, important for people when they think about investing in funds and investing in the managers of those funds. It's more than just sort of the theme here. Because, look, we're all human, and we all go through drawdowns. Every strategy, everything has these periods where it's desynced, whether it's oil or risk-on, risk-off. And it's very discouraging. And, Eric, I mean, just like you alluded to, it is a horribly difficult thing emotionally to go on TV when you're in the midst of a drawdown and to appear and be confident. And knowing that people are looking at you or tweeting saying, you're a clown. What are you doing? Your strategy sucks. You know, you don't know what you're talking about. And it's all because everyone is so myopic in the short term and not realizing that, you know, that's not really the proper way to think about putting money at risk. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gaiad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. 
Well, first you have to you have to know what you own. And so I can look at all of my positions. And so I can say, okay, I own 14 names. On average, they're trading at two times enterprise value to cash flow at $100 oil and a 33% free cash flow yield. And I think they're discounting roughly $57 oil. So that's your starting base. And so then you've got to say, well, okay, the oil market, I think, is is undersupplied by about a million and a half barrels per day if you adjust for what I, I, I ascribe to be temporary weakness in China due to you know regional lockdowns. So then you're like, okay, well, what does that mean? For the market just to reach balance due to a loss of demand, it would require the global economy to hit zero growth, like not just US, not China, like global. You're like, okay, well, that's only happened three times in modern history, 2020 from COVID, 2009 from the financial crisis, and 1982, which I was three at the time, so I can't specifically tell you what was going on, but it was inflationary times and rising interest rates, etc. So I don't, think that recessionary fears like there you know you'll get whipsawed around first off the people that are worried don't own the stocks that i own they don't own the small and mid cap stocks so at, at worst you've got you know some of the large caps may get impacted eventually maybe that does trickle down but i think rationality will will win at the end of the day when people realize that energy stocks broadly are discounting probably 60 to 70 i feel a hundred dollars is going to is going to act as a pretty good fundamental floor. So yeah, we're at the vagaries of of the day-to-day when you know Nasdaq's selling off and you got margin calls and you need liquidity and it's easy to sell your winners and energy stocks. Like there were days when energy stocks were down 4% and oil was up. You're like, what the F is going on? Well, okay, it's just need for liquidity. So that's that's a short-term risk that you've got to evaluate. Personally, and I'm gonna sound like a perma bull when I say this, and I people will, you know, throw rocks at me for saying so, but my own belief is we are in a five to six year bull market, at least $100 oil is going to act as a pretty good floor. And if you believe that, what that means then is any meaningful sell-off is an opportunity to add weight or reweight up. That's my own belief. I cannot find anybody that can justify $9 gas right now. Um, you know, we can point to LNG. We can point to global prices. We can talk to storage. We can talk to ongoing, uh, you, you know, discipline on spending of nat gas guys. We can talk about egress challenges. You know, Marcellus bottlenecked. We can talk about U.S. shale oil not growing as much. Therefore, gas byproduct is not as much, etc. Um, Nine dollar gas is pretty pretty eye popping. There's very few people that I think anticipated this level. And then I read on the plane. I was traveling in and out of Saskatoon yesterday. So you got time on the plane of re- reading the Gehring and Rosenzweig report saying, well, they think, you know, Marcellus is, is peaking, uh, you know, faithful, all the others that clearly have, and, you know, my God, North American gas pricing or U.S. gas pricing is going to reach global pricing in the next six months. It's like, wow, it's like that's, that's, that's tremendous. Um, I still, until North America is better connected to the global pricing, I still think gas is you're at the vagaries of weather because you still need either a hot summer or a cold winter to have an investment thesis. And so my conviction in that is lower than what it would be in oil, which we've called pretty well, where I truly believe we're in a multi-year structural deficit, meaning we need way higher oil prices. And then I can look to the producers and I can quantify on what I think is a reasonable level where I don't need you know weather to, to justify that thesis. So it's more about you know risk versus return that you're taking on. I can just have a hell of a lot more conviction in buying an oil name where right now I'm actively, as we speak, buying names like at 1.6 times enterprise value to cash flow 
and 32% free cash flow yields. They're debt-free in two, three quarters. They're going to return capital, all of those things. So unquestionably, there is upside in gas, there's upside in services, there's upside in oil. Everything is going to go up. It's just a question of, okay, I get money, like I had 6 million bucks coming in yesterday. Okay, where am I going to put that $6 million? Am I going to buy a gas stock at $9 where you know, you're hoping that the summer call is going to turn out? We're still, we're bullish. Or am I going to buy an oil name where I can just have way more conviction in the underlying thesis? So, you know, gas names have done well. Like my fund's done okay this year, but I look at like a term lean up 98%. We don't own it in the main fund. Like that's clearly cost me performance. I just, I, I feel better where I'm positioned right now, which is in, in Canada, not just because I'm Canadian, but that's the most depressed valuations of anywhere in this planet. They're also the producer of the highest rated ESG barrel in the world. I'm invested in long-dated assets where I'm getting decades worth of inventory for free, and they're committed to returning most, if not all, of that free cash flow back to investors. So that's that's I still retain that that stance. You know, everything's going to go up. The question is, how do I squeeze maximum upside relative to the risk that I'm taking on, and the confidence that I can have in in the investment thesis? So I, I do try to have. Um, mile markers to see, okay, are we seeing what we thought we would be seeing? The the one tool that, that we use is looking at global oil inventories, because that's kind of like, you've, that's your BS detector in terms of whether you're, you're, you're right or wrong. You know, inventories, you, know, you have to account for why that is changing. But it, this was something I learned from Mike Rothman at, at Cornerstone, who's, who's been a good um, a mentor, if I can use that word. I'm a client, but you know, he's, he's taught me a lot. So he, he believed, and I believe, that the best tool is gauging global oil inventories because if inventories are falling, there's only one reason why. The market's undersupplied. Conversely, when they're going up, you're oversupplied. And there's a tremendous inverse relationship between inventory trajectory and oil prices, you would expect. And so we use a firm called uh, Kepler uh, to track onshore and offshore uh, oil inventories. Uh, it's near real time. It's like one-week data. It's expensive. It costs 100000 bucks. But it's in my mind, it's money well spent because so that's something that we're keenly watching. And so, you've had oil inventories fall the, by the fastest pace in history. It's like okay, that's that's confirming our view. Well, recently you've got inventories building, so you got to say okay, well, what's going on? So then you can say okay, well, regionally that's occurring in China. You've got a temporary, I think, lockdown, and so the, it's not thesis changing. But that's what we in in terms of oil and the energy market. To me, it's not a demand story. You know, demand short term is dictated by economic growth. That's that's easy, medium to long term, which hopefully we get into. There, all alternatives, the timeline for alternatives to displace oil use, that timeline is measured in decades. Like nothing's going to happen overnight to to kill my thesis. So it's all about supply. So so long as Saudi, I think spare capacity is becoming exhausted in the coming months. Eight of the top ten, you know, producers were underproducing their quota in April. Saudi Aramco just came out and said, look, we're going to increase capacity by a million barrels per day, and it's going to take us five years. And yeah, we'd like to do it faster, but it doesn't work that way. Global super majors, they stopped investing in 2014. I had a great uh, meeting with an analyst from Bernstein last week. They had met with the CFO of Shell the week prior. They're not even remotely close to contemplating increasing investment. And U.S. Shale, I think, hypergrowth is over. And so we, I'm always evaluating, okay, where could I be wrong? What what are the what are the key tenants of my call? And it it comes about that demand will grow for at least the next decade. We will be consuming oil for the rest of our lifetimes. And then on supply, what are the three things I have to follow? Because there's only three. 
U.S. shale is discipline holding, which I truly, truly believe, and we can get into that. OPEX per capacity exhaustion, and then the global supercomputers, and that's that's it. If I boil it down, that's what I, I follow. But inventories are the number one thing that I that I follow, and I, I try to track in real time, and it's the best data that I can spend money on. It's been a three-year campaign of mine to change, not change, but it, adapt the model of energy companies in Canada, similar to what's happening in U.S. Shale. And many of my U.S. peers have been doing it since 2019. But my, my big belief has been, well, let's start off with energy stocks are trading near generational low valuations. I'm buying names at like 1 in 1.6, 1.7 times EV to cash flow. They used to trade at 8. Okay, so there, we've had massive multiple compression because the average person is what I call energy ignorant, which is the polite way of putting it. They have no clue how oil is used and how long it's going to take to get off it. We will all be consuming oil for the rest of our lifetimes. And so, okay, if stocks are trading at generational lows, what can a management team do to change people's perception and make them care to get the stock going up? And so my belief was that as companies are now generating record-free cash flow, the one thing and one thing alone that they should be doing that is giving it back to us and rewarding energy investors for going through the worst bear market in history. And so if you're meaningful, like we have the average energy company in North America trading at a 28% free cash yield at $100 oil next year. Uh, we're buying names in the 30s, free cash yield. And so if you truly get to a point where you, your, your leverage is fine, like we have the average Canadian company being debt-free Q1 of next year, your long inventory, average company sitting on 15 years of inventory. And so if, if you have enough inventory, you don't have to use free cash flow to go do M&A. You don't have to use your free cash flow to delever. And you don't want to grow because your owners don't want that. Like we run the largest fund in Canada. And so by extension, I'm one of the largest owners of small and mid-cap companies in, in Canada on behalf of my unit holders. And so we have a say. Like I own on average 5% per company. That's what I need for board representation if we needed to to use that that tool, which is something we never think that we'll ever have to, to do because everyone is bought into it. So it's not just a large cap belief where Sonova, Suncor, and Meg have all said, once we hit our final leverage metrics, you will get 100% of the free cash flow. We are always calling for 50% now, 75% once you get to your leverage metric, use the 25 as you as you wish. But as, as companies come out with you know, 10, 15, 20% dividend yields, then my belief was, well, that will re-rate your share, your stock price from generational low valuations, so long as the market believes that that's sustainable. But if you're using 50% of your free cash flow at what I think is a floor oil price, and you're debt-free, like that should be uh, something that people can start to, to implicitly value in your, in your stock. And so it, it's incredibly rewarding to see that coming about. And I would say it's a religion that's been adopted sector-wide. I can't even think, I can only think of one company, one small cap that doesn't uh, believe what we uh, believe. And so that's that's incredibly important. And so, you know, what's exciting is the difference between a cheap stock and a value trap. A value trap, you're cheap forever. A cheap stock where if you can identify a catalyst to result in, re -re in the re-rating, Q1 earnings of this year was the beginning of that. And it's only going to get better. You know, I think about Canada, we're long life reserve, we're low corporate decline, Cost structures are low because we've gone through the worst bear market in history. The loonie is very low relative to the, your, the U.S. dollar. So we're selling barrels near record levels. And yet our stocks, uh, we're trading at like two, my fund average, I believe, is trading at about two times enterprise value to cash flow. 
And so I, I, I write a, a column for our, our, one of our newspapers up here. And the last column, the, the punchline was basically, why do more people not see what I see? And whether it's laziness, whether it's there's only one competitor left and myself to differentiate the opportunities, I, I truly do not believe that the valuations of today will last for much longer. I think people are realizing that we are very clearly in an energy supply crisis and there are there is a profound opportunity in that. I mean, I guess you can characterize that as laziness. I, I think we're in a, in a world in general where there's so much reaction and less thinking. It's more system one, less system two, using the Daniel Kahneman kind of way of framing the way that people make decisions, right? Everyone simply looks at a chart and they never go deeper and that's why never nobody really has that conviction unless you're actually in the arena. It goes back to that point of the conversation. So flow of funds is important. It's it's part of the reason why multiples have contracted from you know seven to eight times down to two, let's say, like seventy five percent. It's the reason why you can look at a a ten dollar stock today it used to be forty dollars, you know, five, six, seven, eight years ago. Meanwhile, they're going to be debt free. There's the, the revenue is is an all time high, cost structure low, etc. So it's just the perceived value of the free cash flow stream of these companies. I actually personally am I'm taking the other side of this. I think that the the pendulum swung as bloody far as it could possibly go, and is now starting to swing back. And the reason I believe that is that the invasion of Ukraine. I think is a is a teachable moment, not just for energy policy makers, but it's an excuse for ESG investing to pivot back because the world has made the connection that Russian barrels equals bad. Russian oil equals revenue that's being weaponized to allow them to buy cruise missiles that are killing innocent kids. And that connection has been very, very clearly made. And I will tell you in Canada, speaking to you know, extremely good sources, their inbounds are from European ESG funds saying, look, at, I need to get up to speed on the Canadian oil sands. Can you talk to me about it? Let me just make sure our numbers are right. And you're like, whoa, whoa, wait a second, you're an ESG fund. Why are you saying that? And the reason for that is that they are trying to see if they can fit Canadian energy stocks back into their mandate, which sounds extremely counterintuitive. But is it now ESG friendly? to invest in non-Russian companies, so long as, you know, commitment to net zero by 2050, which we've made, et cetera. So the question I would pose to you is, well, why would they do that? Is it truly that there's that connection that has been made? Or is it the performance anxiety being felt now by managers not long energy, which is by far the best performing sector for the past year and a half, I believe will continue to be, because all fund managers, all advisors, suffer from the same uh, critical weakness. And that is, I can be fired by the click of a mouse button in three nanoseconds. And the only reason why my clients don't do that is that they have conviction that I will continue to make the money. And so wokeness or not, ESG funds or not, they all suffer from that same anxiety. And so that's my own belief. And I can tell you that I'm seeing that um, in terms of fund flows, in terms of conversations that I'm having I do believe that you are starting to see the beginnings. It's early, but the very beginnings of a return of some of the, the funds of flow that left that is coming back. And that will help these stocks trade back to more historical valuations. By far, the biggest bottleneck on oil companies growing supply are the very owners of those businesses, the shareholders. There is not an energy investor on this planet 
that wants oil companies to meaningfully grow their production. And the reason for that is that energy stocks, both in the US and Canada, more so in, in Canada, but energy stocks are trading at valuations that are disconnected from reality, in my opinion. And so I can tell you the conversation that I have as the largest owner of many of these companies is, I strongly would prefer for you not to grow production. What I want you to do is maximize free cash flow and give it back to me. And in doing so, that will result in a re-rating in trading multiples from generational lows. I should not be able to buy companies trading at below two times cash flow when they have 30 years of reserves and are trading at 30% free cash flow yields. And so what will get rewarded? Because ultimately, their job is to get their share price up and make their owners money. The best way to do that is to get a re-rating in their trading multiple by returning capital. It is, it is not by growing oil production. And so we can talk about pipeline capacity issues. It's more of a Canadian issue. We're solving that somewhat with the, uh, an expansion of a pipeline, which is owned by uh, Canadian taxpayers uh, currently. But the, the biggest bottleneck, which is frankly great for the micro and great for the macro, it makes energy companies much, much, much more investable. And it makes the global macro meaningfully better because the roller coaster that I've been riding for the past 10 years has been US shale hypergrowth. This 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 necessity to spoil the party every single time oil price rallies to go drill, baby drill, and, and drill their brains out. The adoption of variable dividends completely changes that. The change of CEO compensation to no longer be aligned with absolute production growth completely changes that. This is a this is a long what will be a long-standing structural change in the ethos of these businesses. And so I, I think it's a mistake to focus on, you know, the, impli- the impact of White House policies and federal leases. And all, that is all noise. The biggest factor by far is energy investors want to get paid. They want to get rewarded for putting up with the agony of the past decade. They are now getting a taste of what 7, 8, 9, 10% variable dividends feels like. And they're not willing to give that up ever again. My, my favorite way to communicate to my clients is Twitter. You know, it's something new. And the only reason I'm on Twitter is that somebody was, impos- was posing as me and using it to pump stocks. So I thought, geez, if I, if I don't build a presence and somebody else is going to, and now I, I get an imposter like every, every month, which is a real annoyance. But I like Twitter. I think, I think it's, it's a compliment, Eric. Come on. People oh, it's, so, like- it's, it's, so, it's so annoying, though. Um, <laughs> But anyways, like it's Twitter is such a great medium to communicate in real time as much as I can. You know, compliance has to, uh, uh, you know, approve tweets and all that stuff ahead of time. I'm not allowed to reply. So we've got a lot of rules to abide by. But yet, despite that, it's the most effective way for me to communicate both to clients and to, you know, potential clients. And I have recent success um, in that regard. And so it's it's a, an ability to circumvent the gatekeeper. I don't have to rely on an advisor to pass on the information. I can go direct to my end client and say, "This is why you should be interested in energy." And you know, we can't you really use it as as a sales tool, but you instill interest and you remind people either why they should care or if they care, why they should continue to care. Uh, I like television because it's more um, you can make that connection. It's that face to face. I've been doing it for for quite a while. Um, I do write a, a column every two odd weeks um, in one of our national newspapers up here. In Canada, you, you get a different audience uh, for that. The paper that I write for is probably more pro-energy than, than some of the other 
mediums, but it's my goal there is to try to shape the narrative around Canadian energy to make people to basically shed the light on energy ignorance because the easiest way I can make my clients money is to drive that re-rating and share prices. And how do I do that? I do that by saying, talking about the role of hydrocarbons, why we will be using them for the rest of our lifetimes, and therefore why perhaps you should be paying for more than two or three times for 20, 30, 40 year life assets where they're generating massive amounts of free cash flow and they've committed to returning most, if not all of it, back to to shareholders. So it, I, I, I take a, a kind of a, all of the above approach because I think each medium has different different targets. But my, my, my favorite one by far is Twitter. And as far as I can tell in Canada, I'm the only one really doing it. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. By the way, I'm glad you mentioned that point about the reply aspect from a compliance and regulation perspective. You know, you'll have people <laughs> that will say, why aren't you responding to me? You know, you're ducking my questions. It's because you literally can't. Right? It's one of those things about the industry, which is unique. And I will add real quick on that media point to me. And I'm with, I'm with Eric 100% on that point about Twitter as sort of the preferred avenue. To me, it's much more about tone. Right. So the tone when you're doing a visual appearance on a TV program or on something like Real Vision is going to be very different than the tone on a social media network where on Twitter, in many cases, the louder you are, the more retweets and engagement you get. And you're going to have to walk that fine line of you know message and how do you get spread across in a way that uh, people will pay attention based on the media, more of a more of a different way to think of, uh, of thinking about it. I think the problem is, is so huge and getting so much larger that it's beyond the ability of supply itself to fix in the next couple of years. And so that's why like, I, I do think oil has to go high enough to kill discretionary demand and at the same time stay high enough and stay there long enough to allow the most woke of companies, you know, of the epicenter be in, in London, to start investing in long cycle. And even when they do, you've got four to six years before you see a supply response. You know, I think within OPEC, the data speaks for itself. When you have seven of the top 10 underproducing their quotas in March, eight of the top 10 underproducing in April, where you have the head of Saudi Aramco saying, we would love to add more capacity, but it takes time. You know, my, my mind says, okay, well, they just said, okay, it's going to take five years to add a million barrels per day. Over the next five years, demand will, at minimum, I think, grow by five million barrels per day. You know, historically, it was growing about 1.4 million prior to COVID. Let's just use a million. So in the next five years, we need to add 5 million. Forget about offsetting base declines and all that stuff. We need 5 million. Saudis, one of that. U.S. shale, I think there's a few more years of 800, 900,000 barrels per day. And then that's hugely challenged because you've got Bakken and Eagleford at best flatlining. So you're really just leaning on the Permian. The global super majors, you know, spending is, is only at 50% of 2014 levels. All of the mega projects sanctioned in the last bull market have come online. And as soon as they start spending, you've got four to six years. So the quantum of the problem, I don't think, can be fixed by supply alone. It cannot be fixed by 
Canada increasing by 100,000 or 200,000. It's not going to be shale, you know, going back to an outspend model and taking away variable dividends and risk, you know, risking the ire of their owners and being fired and losing their $50 million per year jobs, all of those things. Like the quantum of the problem, we haven't even talked about Russia. Like the, the quantum of the problem is so massive that I just don't see a fix. And so if, I'm, if I am Saudi, like I don't believe high oil prices accelerates the transition. I think that's complete garbage. I think anybody who actually spends time thinking about it and looking at the gating factors to speed of adoption would recognize that we could be at $300 oil. It's not going to increase the speed of adoption. You know, what? how are we going to ramp up EV sales? Last year, pure batteries were 3 million. And there's 1.35 billion internal combustion engines in this planet, and it's growing every year. So the problem gets even bigger. Well, it's, you know, $150 oil going to advance uh, the increase in manufacturing to a point where you reach critical scale faster than 20 years? Like, I, I don't think so. So when you sit back and contemplate just how big of a hole we're in and how it's been years in the making, I think it's going to be years in the fixing. So the average Canadian company, if they chose two, which I don't think they will, but they have the ability to be debt-free Q1 of next year. You know, most companies either want to be maybe debt-free in the small guys because they were really, the banks were terrible, terrible actors during 2020, or they want to be at a point where they're like half a turn of debt at $45 row, which is effectively almost debt-free. So once they get there and they're sitting on average 15 years of inventory, I fully expect the model going forward to be low to no growth, maximum, maximum 5% which means that there is a mountain of free cash flow to be returned back to shareholders. I don't think people appreciate truly how much free cash flow is being generated. Like we have sector average, the US skews this a little, but it's 28% in a sector that's debt-free, that if you're long inventory, what do you do with the cash? There's only one thing to do, give it back. And so whether that's in the form of a dividend, whether it's base or variable, whether it's the form of a buyback, you know, I've used a chart where I show, well, the average Canadian company can privatize and become debt-free with four years of free cash. It's under that. It's about 3.6. I don't actually expect that to occur because that uses a static share price. I'm actually thinking my next my piece I'm going to be writing this weekend is, well, what is the power of the of the buyback? And, you know, if you use a market cap of four or five billion, well, what's the value of that last share? It's four or five billion dollars. So you can drive the re-rating. You can, you can force your share price to go up if you are a meaningful enough actor with that free cash flow. What's the role of governments? You know, like we just saw the UK enact the, the stupidest thing you could possibly do. Let's put a windfall profit tax on a mature basin where there's not a tremendous amount of dural ready prospects and we'll just squeeze them to you know goose, I think it was five billion or whatever, maybe that's pounds or dollars of revenue, to give back to consumers to rebate them for their energy demand. So you're goosing demand and you're going to cur- curtail supply because you're injecting uncertainty into a regime in an environment where companies don't want to spend anyways. So it's just, it's the law of unintended consequences. It's energy ignorance. It's idiocy. It's a combination of all of the above. I don't know where government's going to go. Like, I don't think there's any rumblings whatsoever in Canada uh, of profit windfall taxes. It's something we try to spend time on with people with, um, you know, feelers into into the federal government. It's not something that um, I'm worried about right now. I think at least in Canada, I think there's a recognition that we need all cylinders of the economy firing a full blast to dig ourselves out of the fiscal hole that we are in in a post-COVID world. So I, I'm not I'm not worried about that right now. And I don't, I don't want to look out five, six years because every day is a new day. 
and we'll evaluate it um, then. My, my goal right now is, you know, communicating why do I believe we're in a structural multi-year bull market and how do I make my clients the most amount of money that I can uh, from that? So without getting name specific, what I will tell you is it has been a three-year mission of mine and it's it continues. Um, executives still suffer from PTSD from 2020. Combined with in Canada, we just tend to be more conservative than U.S. So it, it means that you have to be a little bit more patient. But that's I wouldn't don't fool yourself to think that we are not going to get extremely meaningful returns of capital. Like my ask used to be fifty and seventy five, fifty percent now, seventy five percent once you achieve your leverage metrics. Unless multiples re-rate, my ask now is seventy five to one hundred percent. And we've had three Canadian companies commit to that once they reach their leverage metrics. That is the model I think going forward until multiples re-rate to a closer to historical average. We use four to six in our targets. So I actually think names will trade back to seven to eight versus two right now, but that's, you know, we'll dare to dream another time. But until we get a re-rating, in my mind, and again, I own the largest shareholder of 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 any mid-cap, small-cap company that I want to own, I'm, I'm generally the largest investor in them. And so we do have a say. And so don't confuse not seeing it yet with what I think I'm confident we will get. Some companies, are they're just a little more conservative. They just have to pay down debt in most cases, just that little bit more. But in the coming one to two quarters, I fully expect you to see much more aggressive returns of certainly Canadian small and mid-cap companies because we, we've already gotten it from the large guys. Like once you commit to returning 100% of your, your free cash flow, it's, it's tough to ask for more than that. You're going to see that. I, I'm confident. I have to use language stage get myself out of commitment there i it's in my opinion you are going to see very very meaningful action in the coming quarters because you know we don't want to have to uh you know get more aggressive but it's we have very friendly conversations on an ongoing basis with all, all of our existing holdings and i would say everybody shares our philosophy that the easiest path to getting higher share prices is is committing to a return of meaningful capital back to investors by the way, I will say on that PTSD point, I've, I've made that that point before that generational lows tend to occur when you have investor PTSD, right? and you saw that clearly with with the negative oil prints. Everybody that's here again, please make sure you follow Eric Natal. Who's, again, as you can tell, very very good at communicating, and uh, I enjoyed this conversation quite a bit. Again, when you've been in the arena, you can you have a lot of respect for others that have been in the arena as well. So, thank you, Eric. You're the man. Hopefully, we'll be able to do this again soon. And thank everybody for joining. Cheers. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.